Today's reading is from 1 Timothy. Train yourself for a holy life. While physical training has some value, training in holy living is useful for everything. It is promised for this life and the life to come. This saying is reliable and deserves complete acceptance. We work and struggle for this. Our hope is set on the living God, who is the savior of all people, especially those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for this time together and for this community. I thank you for your word and for your peace and your love. As Justin comes to deliver your word today, I pray that you open up all of our hearts, that you still our minds, and that you help us to hear what it is you have for each of us. In your name I pray, amen. I'm back. <laughs> My name is still Justin. I'm still one of the pastors of the church. Um, I want to start today with, I'm going to start with a question. And that question is, what is something you've done that you're proud of? What is something you've done that you're proud of? Now, before I have you turn to your neighbor and talk about this, I have three disclaimers. Okay, when I say something that you're proud of, I'm not talking about arrogance. I'm not talking about self, you know, excessive self-congratulation. I'm not saying that you don't recognize the goodness and grace of God in, in that. I mean, just something that, that you're able to feel that little spark of encouragement within yourself. Okay, that's disclaimer number one. Disclaimer number two, it can be big or small. This is not the thing that you're most proud of. It's just something that you're proud of. All right, it might not mean anything to the person sitting next to you, the person that you're sharing with. Uh, but it's something that you're proud of, whether that's getting in shape, uh, running a race, changing your workout regimen or diet, or quitting smoking. It might be getting your finances in order, or saving or working your way out of debt, drawing healthy boundaries, getting out of a bad relationship, or staying committed to someone through a, a hard season. It might be fi finishing uh, college, or getting your GED, or an advanced degree, making it to empty nesthood. Uh, it could be recommitting to a church home. So it could be anything. Just whatever comes to mind, okay? And then disclaimer number three, this is not a comparison with the person that you're sharing with. We are sharing and celebrating together. So if you start hearing this little voice in your head that says you're not as good as the person that you're sharing with or that is sharing with you, you can shut that down right away, okay? So with those three disclaimers in mind, turn to your neighbor for a couple minutes and just share something that you've done that you're proud of. All right, go. In the interest of not comparing, I'm not going to take your answers. <laughs> but I will share uh, from, from my life. When I was a kid, I was, um, I was pretty small. Not that I'm a giant now. But I grew up in Hong Kong, and I was small even by Hong Kong standards, and for longer than I would have wanted to be. And so I just, I really wanted to grow physically. I wanted to grow tall. But my, uh, my mom is five feet tall, and my dad is 5'1". So uh, it wasn't looking promising. <laughs> so, but I, I used to try everything that I could to, 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 to grow, to make myself grow. So my parents said, if you swim, that'll help you grow. <laughs> so I did. I swam like three, four times a week, swimming training. Um, I would go to the playground in our apartment complex, and I would hang from the monkey bars <laughs> just to try and give gravity a, an assist. And um, laying in bed at night, I would just kind of stretch out, just like hoping that nature, you know, just give help nature a helping hand. And the amazing news, the, the thing that I'm most proud well, not most proud of, the thing that I'm proud of is that it worked. <laughs> I'm the tallest in my immediate family. 
Yeah. My, my middle brother is 5'6". My eldest brother is 5'5", five five, so I beat him by one inch. <laughs> and I have been in the tallest in my immediate family for a while. Um, one of my nephews uh, recently overtook me, but he's not in my immediate family. <laughs> so I'm still claiming that trophy. Um, now, I know, I know there are going to be haters in here, because I know, I know what y'all are like, that say things like correlation doesn't equal causation, or, you know, something about genes and height and blah, 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 blah. I ain't here for the haters. The point I'm trying to make is that because I wanted to grow, I did everything in my power to help get there. Right? I did everything that I could to help myself achieve something, even if I didn't know how much control I had over it. So whatever it was that you accomplished, whatever it was that you shared, it's likely, it's probable, that you didn't just stumble into it. It's likely that you had a goal, you had a vision, however big or small it was. You put your intention into it, and you put your effort into it, and you did whatever you could to achieve it. In the summer of 2017, shortly after we launched as Christ City Church, we did a series on the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. How many people were here for that or remember that? So does anyone remember what that series was called? Beginning with the end in mind. Beginning, <laughs> some, some of our elders might have gotten it. That, that's a good sign. Beginning with the end in mind. Because knowing where you're headed will help you know how to get there. Right? If I want to get to Union Station from here, I would go west rather than east. Because, to state the obvious, you would have to go a long way east to get to Union Station from here. Knowing where you want to go, knowing what your target is, will determine how you get where you're going. And what we're going to look at today is how we grow and how we can help in that process. We're halfway through this series and this experience called Learning to Live that our whole church and most of our small groups are going through, diving deep on what it means to follow Jesus in our everyday life. In the first few weeks, we've examined our own starting point. We've submitted ourselves to an honest self-assessment in order to give, gain a God-enlightened self-awareness. We've looked back at our own stories, the experiences, relationships, blessings, and trials that have made us who we are and brought us to where we are. We've looked at God's story, the grand narrative within which we find ourselves. And then last week, Lisa led us in considering where we're headed, the calling God has on each of our, our lives, the deep, the deep cosmic invitation to something more, and we explored what that more might look like. Because there is a way to measure maturity and faith for Christians. There is a method of assessing our spiritual growth, and that is how much like Jesus we are. The Apostle Paul wrote that it is our calling and our destiny to be transformed into Christ-likeness. That is, to become more like Jesus as the Spirit of God enters our lives. He said, we are being transformed into that same image. We are being transformed into that same image. The Apostle John put it this way. Anyone who claims to be intimate with God ought to live the same kind of life Jesus lived. Just laying it out there. Anyone who claims to be intimate with God ought to live the same kind of life Jesus lived. Jesus lived the truest life any human has ever lived because, because he lived the most loving life any human has ever lived. And love is what we were made for. Because if God is love, as we're told in 1 John 4, 
And we are made in the image of God, as it says in Genesis 1, then we too are made to love. We're made for love. We're made to be defined by love. Love is the purpose for which we were made. Love is the standard by which we measure maturity, humanity even. And that's why Jesus said the two greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. In the words of Thomas Merton, to say that I am made in the image of God is to say that love is the reason for my existence. For God is love. Love is my true identity. Selflessness is my true self. Love is my true character. Love is my name. Last week we looked at 1 Corinthians 13, that chapter on love, and we, and we talked about what love really is, what love looks like, not just in the context of a wedding, because that may be where you've heard that chapter read, but in the context of life together as a church and as people. We're learning to live and love as Jesus would if he were in our place. Now you might be wondering, is that even possible? Is it possible to become like Jesus? Is it possible to love like Jesus? Wasn't Jesus God? Didn't he have an unfair advantage? To which my answers would be in order. Yes, 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 no. No, Jesus didn't have an unfair advantage, even though he was God. Because according to Scripture, the reason he was able to do all the things he was able to do isn't because he was God, but because he was filled with the Spirit of God. Okay? The reason that Jesus was able to do the things that he was able to do isn't because he was God, it's because he was filled with the Spirit of God. That same Spirit that he gave to you and me. Same Spirit. The same Spirit that conquered the grave, that raised Jesus back to life. The same Spirit that enabled him to heal people and perform miracles. That same Spirit, eternal and divine, lives in us if we let him. And so this is what author C.S. Lewis writes. If we let him, for we can prevent him if we choose, he will make the feeblest and filthy of us, of us into a god or goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine, a bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though, of course, on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. He meant what he said. Jesus meant what he said. And so, yes, it is possible to become like Jesus. That's the witness of Scripture and the experience of billions of Christians throughout history. It's the witness of a man named Saul, a hyper-religious, nationalistic, murderous zealot who encountered Jesus and became, to the disbelief of many, the fiercest advocate for God's outrageously inclusive gospel of love. It's the witness of many even here in this church. Not that we have it made, not that we have it figured out, but we're able to look back on our lives and we're able to see what God has done. How God has broken chains of addiction, toxic relationships, and hyper-individualism. Jesus said, in John 10, I came so that they could have life. Indeed, so that they could live life to the fullest. This is not an invitation only to those with margin. 
or with privilege, those with wealth or power, those with no worries or concerns. Jesus said it in his context. Jesus said it to people experiencing oppression and occupation, to people who were often subject to others' abuse of power, to people on the margins, to people who often wondered why their lives and their world didn't seem to testify to a just and sovereign God. That's who Jesus said it to. And Jesus says it to us, too, in the context we find ourselves in. With gentrification and displacement in D.C., we see a rise in racism and sexism and homophobia and xenophobia. We see a complacent acquiescence to injustice and corruption. We see the struggle to survive here in our city, to pay rent, to pay our bills and, and school and maybe save something to keep our sanity and our sobriety in the midst of all of the demands on us and on our time. Jesus says it to every one of us. I came that you might have life and you might live life to the fullest. Whoever you are, Jesus talks, says that to you. And today we're going to talk about how to live the full life. Some of us feel like our lives are full already, but full of too many uh, things that we don't want our lives to be full with. Meetings, work, anxiety, stress, injustice. But Jesus invites us to life at its fullest, where our hearts are full, where our souls are full, where our lives are not just filled, but fulfilled. Now, a couple of important things to remember. First, the only way we can measure growth and change is over time. Okay? Change and growth cannot be measured in one moment. Change requires two points. Growth requires a comparison over time. When I was measuring my height, I couldn't just do it in one, in one sitting. Right? I couldn't just like, mark one thing and then just be like, that's it. I came back right? every month, every year. I'd come back and see how I was doing. Or think about the progress of a car journey. If you've had kids, or if you, well, most of us were kids, um, are we there yet? And then a little bit further, are we there yet? A little bit further, are we there yet? And then, you know, hopefully before everyone goes crazy, you do get there. Journeys take time. Growth takes time. Becoming takes time. That's the first thing to remember. Second, you've got to start somewhere. Lisa Watson once said, you will never be who you are not now becoming. You will never be who you are not now becoming. What we do now will impact who we become. That's how life works. So last week we laid out the vision for who you might become, who you're invited to become. If love is, if, if love is what we're aiming for, how do we get there? If we want to love our neighbors as ourselves, how do we get there? If we want to grow in our love, how do we get there? Let me ask you this. Have you ever wondered about the balance or the tension between human effort and divine action. In other words, have you ever wondered where the slider uh, on this diagram goes uh, between what we do and what God does? I used to think about it a lot. Maybe you hear a saying like, all is grace. Or Ephesians 2, it's by grace you've been saved through faith and it's not from yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not by work, so that no one can boast. And you think the slider is all the way, that's my right, your right, to the right. Or maybe you hear a saying like, 
pray like it all depends on God, work like it all depends on you, or James 2, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Faith without works is dead. You think the slider is all the way to the left. Where do you fall on the spectrum when it comes to your understanding of reality and how it relates to work and relationships and your spiritual growth? Uh, it's a trick question because I think this is actually a flawed paradigm. That's putting it mildly. This, this isn't how things work. It's actually more like this. The reality we inhabit is one in which God is love. In which, as Paul wrote in Romans 8, God is always at work to bring good from every situation. In which the Spirit of God is constantly seeking to bring the kingdom of God to earth. And that includes growing more of the kingdom in you. It's what's sometimes called the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is the reality we inhabit. It's one where the Spirit of God is always at work in and through ordinary people like you and me to see more of the kingdom of God, more of the goodness and glory and grace of God on earth. And within that grace-filled reality, we're invited to participate. We're invited to do our part. We're invited to partner and to collaborate and to conspire with God to see more of up there come down here. See, as Dallas Willard said, grace, grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude, effort is an action. Effort is just about what you do. Earning is about your motivation. For example, I could take out the trash or I could cook or do our laundry or mow the lawn in order to win my wife's affection or I could do it because I love her. That's one of the, the reasons my oldest and best friendships are what they are because we accept and love each other as we are even as we continue to call each other to become who God wants us to become. Richard Rohr says, God does not love us if we change. God loves us so that we can change. It's within the safety and, and, and security of that knowledge that we are embedded in the love of God that allows us to grow and allows us to step forward. Most Christians don't live as if they're loved. Most Christians don't live in the knowledge and certainty and safety of being loved by the everlasting God. It's so easy for us to get caught up in our own sin and shortcomings and forget we're loved. And what happens then is that we live out of our unlovedness and we live out of our insecurity and we usually end up hurting people. Love has to be the foundation of our faith and our lives. Otherwise, we'll, we'll just be trying to earn the approval and affirmation of God or other people for as long as we live. And what I'm talking about, what I'm going to talk about, the how, will just become another way to earn, just another form of legalism, another source of guilt and shame because we can't live up to it. The point is not that we're called to live up to it. We aren't. Love has to be the foundation. God is love. You are loved. Jesus is proof of that. That's what John 3.16 is all about. God so loved the world. He already loved every one of us. That he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him, trusts in him, trusts him, won't perish but will have eternal life. God's life. Life to the full. 
That's why Jesus came and, and lived among us and died for us and was raised to life, so that we also might have life, so that we might be transformed, so that we might become who God intended for us to become. Author and professor James Brian Smith has a helpful tool for understanding how spiritual transformation happens. It has four components, or he suggests it has four components. First is the Holy Spirit, which we talked a little bit about. The second thing is changing the narrative. This means that there are storylines in our heads that influence how we think and how we act and what we say, and more often than not, they're unconscious. But we need to correct the lies with God's truth, where we're believing those lies. God's truth. You are loved as you are. You are worth more to, you're worth more to God than anything, as you are. You belong here, as you are. There's more to life than this. It doesn't have to be this way. God's truth, changing the narrative. The third thing is community. Community is indispensable in spiritual transformation. People often come to D.C. believing they can change the world apart from community, or they can follow Jesus apart from community, or they can do life apart from community. But Jesus saved us into his community, into his family, to be part of his body, to be adopted as, as children of God along with other brothers and sisters. Other Christians are mediators of God's Spirit to us, just as we are mediators of God's Spirit to one another. And then the fourth piece, soul training practices. Soul training practices. This is where the effort comes in. All right? This is what I want to focus on for the remainder of the time we have today. In the passage Nicole read earlier, here's what the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, a young man he had discipled and mentored and commissioned as a pastor. He said, train yourself for a holy life. While physical training has some value, training in holy living is useful for everything. It has promised for this life now and the life to come. The saying is reliable and deserves complete acceptance. We work and struggle for this. Our hope is set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. That word train, the beginning, comes from the Greek word gymnaze, from which we get words like gymnasium or gymnast. It was used in the context of Olympic athletes training for intense competition. The two other words I want to highlight are uh, work and struggle. Work and struggle. The, the, the word for struggle in Greek, agonizometha. Sounds like agonizometha. Agonize. Right? Agony. Train, exercise, work, struggle. Remember what C.S. Lewis said. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but this is what we are in for. Paul says, train yourself for a holy life. Train yourself to be godly. He doesn't say, try to be godly. There's a difference between training and trying. Okay? A few years ago, I was in a class where we were introduced to a new uh, metaphor, uh, pastor as personal spiritual trainer. Pastor as personal spiritual trainer. In other words, my role is not only to help you grow strong, uh, but to give you the tools to keep growing, whether I'm here or not. And when my prof introduced this, he said, I mean, you don't just go to the gym and, and do whatever you feel like, do you? You don't just go and do exactly the same workout at the time, all the time, right? And at the time, I thought, well, that's exactly what I do. <laughs> 
maybe why I didn't do anything for me. I was trying. I wasn't training. Right? I was trying. I was making some sort of token effort to assuage my guilt or whatever it was, but I wasn't actually training. I wasn't putting in the work that I needed to put in to get where I wanted to go. I've heard one pastor use this language, dabbling versus devoted. Are you dabbling or are you devoted? The early church, it says in Acts 2, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Are you devoted to God and growing in the likeness of Christ, becoming a better person? Or are you just dabbling, doing enough to get by? Are you devoted to growing in community, to building relationships, to loving those around you, including your enemies and those who may not agree with you, those who may despise you even? You're just dabbling. What do you do regularly and consistently that builds your character, grows your soul, and puts you in a position to experience the transforming love and power of God? That's what soul training practices or spiritual disciplines, that's what they are. They're holy habits, practices that work out and build up our spiritual muscles. You know, there was a study by Duke University about 15 years ago that said, that found that about 40% of our actions are habits. Every day, 40% of the actions we make are habits. We don't think about them anymore. And psychologist William James went further. He said, all our life, so far as it has definite form, is but a mass of habits. Practical, emotional, intellectual, systematically organized for our well-being or woe, and bearing us irresistibly toward our destiny. And so another professor of mine, Jude Tiersma Watson, says that if we don't create rhythms, we will become subject to all of the things outside of us that are demanding our attention. This is why the habits we cultivate are so important and why the holy habits we cultivate are vital. Whatever term you use, you may not like the word discipline. The reality is, in order to grow or make progress in anything, you have to do things regularly and consistently to build up your muscles in whatever it is you're wanting to learn. So, for example, if it's football, you practice throwing or catching or running routes or footwork or agility. If it's, if it's a musical instrument, you practice scales and fingering. It's, if it's a language, you practice the alphabet and, and numbers and word endings. Now, the point is not to become an expert at football drills or piano scales or how fast you can say uh, numbers in another language. That's not the goal. The goal is to be able to play well in a game, to perform a piece to talk to a native speaker, not have them laugh at your accent or your unfortunate misuse of a word. The point of soul training practices is not to become a prayer consultant or even to recite all the Bible from memory. It's to grow our character. It's to grow in love. It's to help us have a deeper, more loving relationship with God and with other people. In other words, to become more like Jesus. In 1 John 4.20, it says these convicting words, Those who say, I love God, and hate their brothers or sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Or how about these convicting words of Jesus from Matthew 25? I was hungry, and you didn't give me food. I was thirsty, you didn't give me anything to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't welcome me. I was naked and you didn't give me clothes to wear. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. 
And then they will reply, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison and, you didn't, and we didn't do anything to help you? And then he will answer, I assure you that when you haven't done it for one of the least of these, you haven't done it for me. And they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous ones will go into eternal life. The thing is, it's not just about doing these things. We should do these things. The point is not to treat them like a checklist so that we can feel good about ourselves. We are called to become the kind of people that do these things. We are called to become the kind of people that do these things. And maybe the first step for us down that path is to actually do these things. To start here, to feed the hungry and the thirsty, to clothe the naked, to welcome strangers, immigrants, foreigners, refugees, to visit those who are sick and in prison. For that is where Christ is found in the divine image that is in every single person, and particularly those who are in need. This is, how, this is how who we are becoming is inextricably and intricately intertwined with the world we live in. Because it could be very easy for me to just deliver this, how to live a full life, and you could take it away and just be like, this is how I'm going to improve myself. That's not what this is about. This is about living well in the life and the world that God has, God has placed us in. We grow in the likeness of Jesus. We grow in love. We grow in loving others, including our neighbors, including those in need, including our enemies, and we love them with the love of God. And that is how God uses us, God's people, God's church, as agents of love and light and joy and justice. That's how we participate in seeing more of God's kingdom. That's the way things, God wants things to be. Come on earth in every life and every sphere of life. We let God in, we grow, but we understand that we grow in love, not just about self-improvement. And love is impossible without somebody else. And so we're learning to live and love as Jesus did. As, you, as we've been going through learning to live, you may have noticed some of the things we've been doing regularly and consistently, whether in your small groups or on your own, been reading the Bible, we've been praying, we've been journaling, been meeting together, we've been in community, conversing with fellow pilgrims, even disagreeing. We've shared our stories. We've learned to see how God works in different ways with us, not how, how, how just because someone has a different experience from you or a different opinion than you doesn't necessarily make them wrong. They might be, but so might you. We've been noticing and reflecting on how God is at work. We're taking pictures of things that remind us of God's story or things that give us hope or things that give us resilience or things that we've been trying to pay attention. Expressing our love and appreciation to someone with a note or a text. Every practice is designed to nudge your character in a particular direction toward Christ-likeness and hopefully turn into something you do regularly to the point where you do it naturally and instinctively. That's how we partner with the Spirit to become more like Jesus. Over the next few weeks, we're going to look at two of the foundational disciplines of faith, prayer, and, and, and the Bible. Uh, so I'm not going to talk about those today. What I want to mention real quick are three practices that I think are particularly needed for us here in D.C. The first, which we've talked about before here at church, at Christ City, is Sabbath. The root of the word for Sabbath is Shabbat. It means to stop and to rest. 
That's essentially what it is. One day a week where you stop and rest and you set aside focused time to connect with God in life. It might be going for a hike. It might be enjoying a good meal with loved ones or a longer time of prayer than you can normally afford to take. The idea behind Sabbath is that we need to be reminded regularly that we are not the center of the universe because we often think we are. That things continue to function without us because we often think they don't. And that more importantly, God continues to be at work even when we are not. That we inhabit that reality in which, as we said earlier, God's Spirit is always on the move. And we can rest in that. We can trust in that. We can jump in and participate. But we can also know that it isn't all on our shoulders. Now I know some of us have really busy schedules, but what would it look like? What would it take for us to give one day a week or you know, a few hours a day even to really immerse ourselves in God and His goodness in our lives? So I know for many of you, today, Sunday, is your Sabbath. So church is part of that. Um, not just coming to consume, but enjoying the presence of God as you worship, as you talk to folks, as you serve with others, as you teach kids, as you play in the band, as you create a space for others to likewise become more aware of God. Well, what then does the rest of your day look like? How much thought have you given to that? How will you keep the Sabbath holy? How will you treat it differently? so that you might be reminded of the reality you inhabit and the ways God is inviting you to grow in love. Sabbath. Second practice I want to uh, suggest for us is that of slowing down. Slow down. We live in a fast-paced city. We pack our schedules full, and if you're like me, you try to cram so much into your schedule that, that you're usually a few minutes late for everything. So I apologize if we have something planned. Probably be late. The sickness of hurry, the inner disposition of anxiety and, and, and stress and worry, it affects all of us. The thing is, it's really hard to show love if you're always in a hurry, right? Love takes time and attention, which are two things that people in a hurry don't have. In Luke 8, Jesus was asked by a prominent Jewish leader to, to heal his daughter. And as he was making his way there, a woman who had suffered from, from chronic bleeding for 12 years, so she was ceremonially unclean and she was a social outcast, she managed to sneak her way through the crowd and reach out and touch the hem of his garment, and she was healed. No fuss, no muss, no fuss. He could have just kept going. He was on his way somewhere important. He was going to heal the daughter of someone important. Maybe someone who would like fund their ministry or something. He could have just kept going. But he stopped. He turned around. He said, who touched me? And he waited until she came forward. And he listened to her story. Listened to her story. Twelve years. Imagine how much time that took. Imagine those disciples being like, I mean, they didn't have watches. <laughs> They're tapping their feet. Going, Lord, this is like, Dollars going out the window. He slowed down enough to see her and to hear her, to restore her to community. Jesus was often busy, but he was never in a hurry. What would that look like for you? Are you interruptible? When someone says they're fine, are you going slow enough to notice the look in their eye that tells you they're not? 
and then to take the time to listen to them, support them. Are people in need an inconvenience to you or an opportunity to serve Christ in them? Slow down. Maybe that's literally slowing down your walk. Uh, professional golfers, I'm told, I don't know because I'm not a professional, professional golfer, but professional golfers, when they need to calm down, about to hit a, a big, big shot, they can slow their walk. They walk slower to their next hole so that that false energy can dissipate. Maybe you can do the same when you're anxious, when you're stressed, when you're upset. Slow down. Slow your breathing. Slow your walk. Slow your impulsive reactions. Try strolling instead of striding. Take time to say a prayer and then to listen. Maybe it's slowing down your schedule. Maybe it's creating space in your schedule to interact with your neighbors or to give your time to a need in our city. And the third practice I want to mention today, starting well. Start well. What's the first thing you do in the morning? Whose is the first voice you hear? What are the first truths that frame your day? Is it the news? What's going on in the world? Is it email? All the things that you have to do today? Is it social media? All the fun things that other people were doing while you slept? Or is it a time of listening to what God has to say to you and about you? A reminder to yourself that this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Let me tell you, it makes a night and day difference when the first thing I do in the morning is turn to my phone instead of my Bible or my journal or prayer. This is what German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote. He wrote, for Christians, the beginning of the day should not be burdened and depressed with besetting concerns about the day's work. At the threshold of each new day stands the Lord who made it. All the darkness and distraction of the dreams of night retreat before the clear light of Jesus Christ and His wakening word. All unrest, all impurity, all care, all anxiety flee before Him. Therefore, the beginning of the day, let all distraction and empty talk be silenced, and let the first thought and the first word belong to Him to whom our whole life belongs. Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. Now that looks a little different for me now, now that I'm a parent. When, when Daniel was born 51 weeks ago, pretty much all routine and consistent spiritual practice got blown out of the water. But finding that groove again, whatever that looks like, carving out just a small window in your life, 30 seconds of quiet, one minute of quiet, five minutes of quiet, that's like one YouTube video that you know you didn't need to watch. We live in a gracious and graceful reality. We're safe in the embrace of a gracious God. I want you to remember that. That's the reality we inhabit. It is a grace-filled reality. So press into these practices. Try them out. Work hard at training your spiritual muscles. But if and when, because you will, you screw up and slip up and forget, don't, don't believe the lie that you should feel guilty about it. Don't beat yourself up. Pick yourself up. Try again. Go at it again. I want to close with this um, from Lisa Sharon Harper's book, Very Good Gospel. She says, Evidence of the presence of the kingdom of God is thick, 
wherever and whenever people stand on the promise of God that there is more to the world, more to this life than what we see. There is more than the getting over, getting by, or getting mine. There is more than the brokenness, the destruction, and the despair that threaten to wash over us like the waters of the deep. There is a vision of a world where God cuts through the chaos, where God speaks and there is light. There is a vision where there is protection and where love is binding every relationship together. There is a call for humanity to exercise dominion over self and the rest of creation in a way that serves all and not just self. And there is a promise that as long as we follow God's way, there will be life, healing, and love. There will come a day when all the world stands before God in shalom, in peace. And there will be only one tree, and its leaves will heal our wounds. You are an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. And there is a whole lot of hurt and pain and suffering and injustice and need in the world and even in our own lives. And I believe that only the love of God at work in us and through us can turn things around. Jesus came so that we, all of us, every single human being on the planet, might live life to the fullest. The question is, are we going to participate in that? And are we going to make a way for others to participate in that? Would you pray with me? God, even this morning, we've, uh, we've heard stories from our friends at Ten of Nations and, and Free Minds that, that, that tell us both of the brokenness in our world, but also the beauty, also the ways that you are at work to bring life and healing and joy and hope. And so, God, whatever, whatever that looks like in our own lives, whatever you are laying on our hearts, whether there is something that's, that's pressing on us individually, something, some way that you are asking us to step towards you. Uh, we pray that you would make that clear. That you would give us the courage to take hold of that and to step into that. If there's a way that you're asking us to step toward others in this time, to make space, to make room, we pray that you'd make that clear to us, that you'd give us the courage to step toward that. God, help us to remember that everything around us is grace. That you are working in every single thing to bring good out of it. No matter how dire it might seem, no matter how irredeemable it might seem, no matter how difficult it might seem, you are working to bring good out of it. So help us to bring everything to you so that you might transform it, you might transform us. Pray these things in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.